Well, here we are in John chapter uh, 14. We're going to come to the end of the chapter this morning in what is known commonly as the Upper Room Discourse. Uh, it, it started all the way back in chapter 13. The discussion is going to take place continuing all the way through chapter 16. Uh, and here at the end of the chapter, you'll see that there's a change uh, where the discussion takes place as they're going to depart from the upper room and they're going to make their way over to the Garden of Gethsemane. And again, all of this happens the night before the Lord is betrayed, again, in what is known as the Passion Week. Um, I, I tell you what, honestly, this is one of those portions of Scripture that I told my wife. It's like you read a first blush and you go, ah, yeah, I, I can read what it says, but what does it say? What, what do I get from it? Then you really start to study it, and yeah, I tell you what, you're going to find your heart's just so encouraged. I mean, all of John has just been a great encouragement to me. I hope it's been to you. It is so deep, so deeply rich theologically. And you're here again uh, uh, at the end of this chapter, just more rich truth uh, to encourage our hearts uh, as uh, looking at the cross from uh, really the perspective of Christ. Well, again, it's the night before he's betrayed. It's the Passion Week. Uh, he's repeatedly, Jesus has re- repeatedly told his disciples that uh, he's going to depart from them. Uh, John seven thirty three. for a little while longer I'm with you, then I go to him who sent me. John twelve thirty five. Jesus says, "For a little longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, for the darkness, so the darkness may not overtake you." Uh, John gives an editorial comment in uh, John thirteen, uh, verse one. He says, "Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end." Verse thirty three of that chapter, Jesus says, "Where I'm going, you can't come." Where I'm going, you can't follow me now, but you shall follow me later. Uh, top of the chapter 14, verse 2 says, In my Father's house and many dwelling places, if it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place, I'll come again, receive you to myself. Where I am there, you may be also. Verse 12, chapter 14, I go to the Father. Uh, again, portion of the text we're going to look at this morning, verse 28. You heard it said, I go away. Right? And I go away and I'll come to you. So repeatedly he's telling them this. I'm, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. I'm going to go away. I'm going to go back to the Father. And if you just kept it um, uh, limited to the book of John, uh, just in the book of John, he's actually told them not only is he departing, but he's, uh, ever since chapter 2, he's told them that he's going to die. Chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus says, destroy this temple. Three days I'll rise it up. Verse 21 of that chapter, he's speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised up from the dead... His disciples remember that he'd said this, and they believe the scripture which the word of Jesus had spoken. Chapter three, verse fourteen, he says, "As Moses was lifted up, or as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up." To the false religious leaders, in chapter eight, verse twenty-eight, Jesus said, "When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am." Verse forty, you are seeking to kill me, a man who's told you the truth. Verse 59, they pick up stones to stone him. So he's not only told them that he's going to depart, but that he's going to die. He's going to be killed. Chapter 10, Jesus says that I lay down my life for the sheep. I have the authority to lay it down, the authority to take it up. Chapter 12, again, Jesus speaking of his death. Verse 32, in fact, he even tells how he's going to die, again, by being lifted up. This phrase of being lifted up. If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Uh, verse 33, he was saying this to indicate the kind of death at which he was to die. Now, the, the Jews didn't do that. The Jews executed somebody by doing what? Stoning them. Right? They stoned them to death. So to be lifted up really speaks of Roman crucifixion, which is kind of odd for Jesus uh, to suffer because he's a Jew. 
In fact, again, he actually told them and repeatedly in details that not only would he be lifted up, but he'd be arrested the leaders, by the leaders of Israel. He'd be scourged, spit upon, abused, and then eventually killed by being lifted up. Now, all of this talk of his uh, looming departure and all of this talk of his coming death frightens these men. It's filled their hearts with anxiety and grief and depression. That's why he says at the top of the chapter, chapter 14, verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. Keep on, right? Keep on believing in God and believe in me also. And as we looked last week in verse 27, he says, Peace I leave with you, and my peace I give to you, not as the world gives you do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You, uh, If you have parents, if you have ever been a child of a parent, you know that when you're trying to get their attention, you often do what? Repeat yourself, right? He just repeated himself. Right? Let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. Don't let it be fearful. My peace I leave with you. Again, the Lord knows that his departure is imminent. He knows that literally the cross is just a few hours away. And again, he's trying to encourage his disciples. He's, he, he's bringing them encouragement. He's bringing comfort to them. Uh, again, he knows the discussion of his departure, the discussion of his death is causing them to be fearful. It's causing them to be anxious. And it's interesting that in the midst of what he knows is coming for him personally and all the suffering that's, uh, that goes with it, he's not really focused on himself. He's focused on them because he loves them. He's trying to encourage their hearts. And I've told you many times throughout this study in the, from the John 14 perspective before the cross, again, the disciples don't quite get it. They don't understand. It, it, the, their complete understanding is outside the realm of them at this moment that the Messiah is going to die. They can't see that. They, they don't understand that from their perspective. But from our perspective, we see it from a, a different angle historically. Therefore, we have a different or a fuller, more full understanding of the story. We can look back at the cross from our perspective, and we have a full, rich theology of the cross. We understand that the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is the central truth concerning the Christian faith. In fact, J.C. Ryle once said this concerning Christ's death. He says, it is the grand peculiarity of the Christian religion. Other religions have laws and moral precepts, forms and ceremonies, rewards and punishments. But other religions cannot tell us of a dying Savior. They cannot show us the cross. This is the crown and the glory of the gospel, he says. The central truth concerning Christianity is a dying Savior on a cross. Now, we look back uh, 2,000 years, again, from our perspective, and by way of the understanding that God has given to us, we understand what God has done through Christ to accomplish for us our redemption through the suffering, the shame, the sacrifice, the abuse uh, by a world of uh, wicked men that uh, heaped, uh, heaped upon Christ as they uh, murdered him. Uh, we, we look at the cross and we realize that it's a very, uh, at the very heart of all we hold dear uh, concerning our Savior and our love for him. We look at the cross and realize that his death is the ultimate goal in his incarnation. His, again, once for all sacrifice, the central truth of the life of the church. We look at the cross from our perspective. We understand that because of Christ's death, we're redeemed. We've been bought back from the slave market of sin. The penalty for our sin has been paid for by Christ. Therefore, we're brought close to God. We're now reconciled to the Father. We're cleansed, justified, sanctified, perfected forever. Therefore, we have objective peace with God. Not only do we have peace with God, but Jew and Gentile are now made one in Christ. 
All of our sins, again, canceled out in Christ. His shed blood establishes for us the blessings of the new covenant. It provides for us the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit and the ability to have a new life, to be new creatures in Christ, to, to walk in newness of life. Again, we've been redeemed, uh, set free from slavery to sin through the shed blood of, of Christ. We have access to the very throne of grace that we were reading about in the book of the Revelation. All this won for us by Christ. I mean, just blessing, literally, blessing after blessing after blessing, gained uh, for, for us through God judging our sin in Christ and God not judging us. We understand that because of the shed blood of Christ, we are in the eternal plan of God. We are eternally loved of God, by God, before the foundation of the world. We're children, adopted, again brought into an intimate relationship with God through Christ, delivered from the kingdom and the power of darkness, translated into the kingdom of the Son of God's love. Uh, we are heavenly citizens. Uh, heavenly citizens. We're part of the household of God. We have an, an eternal inheritance. We have the promise of glory, the promise of glorification. We're complete in Christ. Uh, we, we possess every spiritual blessing. I mean, literally, we just go on and on and on and on. Uh, again, redemption, reconciliation, justification, sanctification, access to God in peace, all through the blood of Christ, all through the cross. So we, had, we understand the cross, at least from uh, our perspective, to some, uh, to some degree, uh, again, because the cross is the very heart, uh, the center of all we believe and all we hold dear to be true. John Walvoord says this. He says, no event of time or eternity compares with the transcending significance of the death of Christ on the cross. Other important undertakings of God, such as the creation of the world, the incarnation of Christ, his resurrection, the second coming, the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, become meaningless if Christ did not die. In the study of Christ and his sufferings and death, one is in the Holy of Holies, the mercy seat sprinkled with blood, which only the Spirit-taught mind has access. In his death, Christ supremely revealed the holiness and righteousness of God, as well as the love of God, which prompted the sacrifice. In a similar way, the, in the infinite wisdom of God, or the infinite wisdom of God, is revealed as no human mind would ever have devised such a way of salvation and only an infinite God would be willing to sacrifice his son. So the cross is everything does. That's why Paul says, 1 Corinthians 2 and 2, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's why Paul said in Galatians 6, 14, God forbid, or may it never be that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified to me and I unto the world. So on this side of the cross, we look back and we have some understanding of the importance of the cross and what it means to us. But from the disciples' perspective, John chapter 14, before the historical event of the cross, they're struggling. They're anxious. They're fearful. They don't have the theological understanding as we do. And the disciples are very much like us. Very self-focused, very subjective. If you wanted just a, a term, it would be selfish. As they are looking and are anticipating the events that, again, they don't quite understand in full that Christ says are coming soon. So they're looking, again, what they cannot see clearly, but they're looking to the future events from their perspective. Again, Christ's soon departure, his death, although I'm pretty certain at the moment they don't aren't even consciously acknowledging that aspect. 
at the moment, his death. And obviously they want Jesus to stay and not go. I mean, he's been taking care of them for quite a long time now. He supplied everything they need physically, spiritually, emotionally. They can't imagine life without Jesus being presently with them. All they see in Jesus' departure is a loss for them. All they see in Jesus' departure is how it's going to affect their life, their hopes, their dreams, their ambitions, their, their, their desires. Now they're all being crushed. All of these hopes and dreams and ambitions are all being crushed, set aside, because Jesus isn't going to fulfill their expectations because they really expected him at his first coming to overthrow the Romans and restore Israel's sovereignty and glory and grant them a position of importance and a restored kingdom. And they're only looking out for their own good. Their own personal interests are not considered in the least of the upcoming situation from Jesus' perspective. And again, all they see in the upcoming death of Christ is how it's going to be a loss to them. They can't see what the cross means to Jesus. But we're going to have the opportunity to do that this morning because that's what the text is about. That's what the text is about. What the cross meant to Jesus. It's a phenomenal portion of scripture that you could read right over top if we weren't careful. Now I'm going to start in verse 27. It's the verse I spent the entirety of the last time on, but it's important enough, so I'm going back. Verse 27 says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Again, we spent the entirety of the Lord's Day last week on this one verse. If you were not with us, if you didn't listen to it or have a chance to hear it, you'd be greatly encouraged uh, to go back and listen to that. Because that's what Christ wants to give you as his people, as his followers. He wants to give you subjective peace. He wants to give you peace that enables you to remain calm in the midst of every and any kind of fearful circumstance, even suffering. He wants to give you a peace that is not affected by circumstance, a peace that overrides adversity of all kinds that is above a tribulation. Again, that is only found in the person of Jesus Christ who happens to be the Prince of Peace. And subjective peace that he wants to give as a gift, this uh, experiential peace, if you will, the experience of peace in one's life, again, no matter what the circumstance, comes by way of objective peace having been won. Christ has won objective peace between God and man for those who repent and place their faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ because of what, has, what God has done through Christ and the suffering of Christ on the cross. When Christ was on the cross, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them in Christ. Uh, on the cross, God judged our sins. Christ was punished. Uh, God punished Christ in our place so he would not have to punish us. Uh, on the cross, while we are yet sinners, God demonstrates his love towards us in that Christ died. Now, therefore, we're justified by his blood, saved from the wrath of God through him, because while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Subjective peace, experiential peace, peace in your everyday life has been won. The peace of God that's active has been won by Christ. Again, the objective peace of God, or subjective peace of God, that affects every circumstance, that triumphs over every circumstance. The peace that Christ promises his followers as a gift, and if it's a gift, it has to be what? 
received. Taken. I, I was struck, I was telling my wife and a couple of the people I met with this week, <coughs> how simple the Bible is. Abraham believed God, and God counted it as what? Righteousness. Didn't ask him to work. Didn't ask him to count beads, light candles, say prayers. Didn't ask him to climb a mountain. Just believe me. That's what God always asks us to do. Just believe. My peace I give to you, not as the world. My peace I leave with you, not as the not as the world gives you. Do I give you? Let not your hearts let it not be troubled. Let it not be fearful. I mean, it's a gift of God's kindness and grace through the person of Jesus Christ. He offers what He has won. He offers the kind of peace that the world desperately needs and will never have unless it repents and comes to Christ. But he offers to us, his followers, the kind of peace we want. And again, the kind of peace that we desperately need, peace in our heart. That comes to us, again, only through Christ, only because of his work upon Calvary's cross. Only if we receive it. The peace of God. Again, the world will never know this kind of peace, apart from Christ. Unless the world has objective peace won by Christ until their sins are forgiven in Christ and the hostility or the enmity between God and them is settled and removed, they'll never know subjective peace. But for the Christian, while we have been granted objective peace through the finished work of Christ, the Christian will never be free from anxiety or worry in their life that they can't do anything or not, or anxiety and worry is not going to do anything to solve any of the problems in your life. The Christian will never be free from that in their life unless the Christian, listen, believes what Christ says. It's that simple. And takes from him the gift that he desires to give his children. That peace is made possible in a person's life through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who produces peace, because that's the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace peace i leave with you my peace i give to you not as the world gives do i give to you let not your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful again the peace of god is available for you as a believer in christ if you desire it it's that simple the peace of god is available for you as a believer in christ if you desire it peace above your circumstances peace in spite of your circumstances Freedom from anxiety, freedom from worry that is unaffected by the difficulties of this life. That's Christ's peace. That's the gift to his followers he wants to give if you will but receive it. Bruce Milne says this, he says, Few things are more sought after than peace for an inner tranquility of the spirit. Not abstracted from the world of responsibility and relationships, but nourished and expressed in the midst of it. Such is the peace Christ offers. My peace I give you. In the very face of unspeakable sufferings, it is the peace born from a living personal relationship with Jesus and deepened through a growing surrender of life to his gracious rule. This is the Holy Spirit. This the Holy Spirit makes available to the troubled heart of the disciples and to ours. Isn't that good? It's a gift. Take it. D.A. Carson says, Jesus displaced transcendent peace, his own peace. He says, my peace through his perilous hours of suffering and death. And by 
that death, he absorbed in himself the malice of others, the sin of the world, and introduces the promised messianic peace in a way none of his contemporaries had envisaged. The Pax Romana, or Roman peace, he says, was won and maintained by a brutal sword. Not few Jews thought the messianic peace would have to be secured by a still mightier sword. Instead, he said, it was secured by an innocent man who suffered and died at the hands of the Romans, of, of the Jews, and of all of us, and by his death he effected for us own followers peace with God. Therefore, the peace of God which transcends all understanding, as it says in Philippians 4.7. Peace. I'd encourage you to go back and listen. If you missed last week, and if you were here last week, go back and listen to it again and listen to it again until you believe what God says through Christ. Such wonderful truth that God wants to give his children, those who love him, his peace. My peace, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Verse 28. You heard that I said to you, I go away and will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. Again, he's going to tell these disciples it's, it's time to stop being fearful. And it's not only time to stop being fearful, it's time to stop being selfish. It's time to get a proper perspective, Christ's perspective, on all the events that are about to unfold that is going to include his suffering and his death upon Calvary's cross. And this really is a rebuke. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. If you loved me, that's got to sting a bit, right? The most notable aspect of love is love does not seek its own, it says in 1 Corinthians 13.5. The best, most notable aspect of love, it doesn't seek its own. Love always seeks what's best for the object of, uh, of love. And what Jesus is doing here in these words of rebuke to these disciples is he is exposing them. He's exposing the weakness of their love for him. He's exposing that sadly while they do love him to a certain level, his, their love for him is much like the, the fickle love from the crowd that Christ fed. Remember that back in John 6? Remember there was that 5,000 and if you start counting women and children, maybe it was up to 20,000 that Christ fed miraculously by five barley loaves and two fish. He fed them dinner. Everybody was satisfied as much as they want and they loved him. They loved him. Follow him across the lake the next morning. They want breakfast. Make, he makes some pretty strong demands upon them to again expose them. But under these strong demands, the multitudes are unwilling to follow him. And he rebukes them there also. He says, you love me because, uh, you, you're, and you're following me not because you understand who I am and you truly love me, but you're following me because you're eight and you're fit and you're filled. You're following me only because of what I can do for you. And sadly, the situation here in John 14 is much the same type. The disciples are more concerned about what Christ has done for them and what Christ can do for them. They're not loving him to the extent that they really should 
love him because they're so selfish and so self-centered. And this is exactly the opposite kind of love that he has loved them with. Uh, He loved them selflessly. Uh, He put their best interests above his, uh, their best interests above his own. Uh, Again, just remember back to the beginning of chapter 13. The Lord of glory, he humbles himself. Uh, He girds himself with a towel and washes the disciples' dirty feet because they wouldn't stoop to do what was necessary and what needed to be done for each other out of love. The Lord of glory does that. In John's comment, John 13, 1 says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And that's just the kind of love he just keeps demonstrating to the end. He's going to love his own selflessly. He's going to love them to the end. He's going to love them all the way to death. Uh, He's going to give his life up up for them because, again, true love is always unselfish. True love always seeks the joy of and what is best for the one it loves. Again, verse 28, you heard that I said to you, I go away and I'll come to you. If you love me, if you truly love me with a biblical unselfish love, you would have rejoiced. Why? Because I go to the Father. If you love me, if you truly love me, you would have rejoiced because I told you I'm going away and I'm going to the Father. If you truly love me, then you would understand what my departure means to me. And again, the fact I go to the Father. So again, it's time for a perspective change. Time for the disciples to take their focus off themselves and stop letting their hearts be troubled and stop letting their hearts be fearful. To look again at what the cross means to Jesus himself. And in the text before us, there are four great realities that come to the forefront in in the following few verses. That again, tell us what Jesus' death meant to him. And what Jesus understood, and again, these men cannot see uh, from his perspective or from their perspective, again, on the other side of the cross, right? And again, we can look back and we can see them from our perspective on this side of the cross. So what are they? What are these four great realities? What does Jesus' death mean to him? Number one, it means his ministry is validated. His ministry is validated. His ministry is vindicated. And he himself has been exalted or will be exalted. His ministry is validated, vindicated, and he is exalted. Again, you heard it said that I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. Now, I go away. In reality, I think that first speaks about his ascension. Right after his death, burial, and resurrection, I go away. That's his ascension. That's what happens in Acts chapter 1, verse 9. Again, after his death, burial, and resurrection, verse 9 says, after he said these things, he was lifted up. <coughs> Excuse me, he was lifted up while they were looking on. A cloud received him out of their sight, and they were gazing intently at the sky while he was departing. Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking at the sky? This Jesus who has been taking up for you into heaven will come just in the same way as you have watched him go to heaven. I go away. (coughs) He goes, I go away. That's the ascension. Again, then he says, I will come to you. Now, commentators like to spend a lot of time wrestling a great length what this statement means, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but it probably means more than one thing. I will come to you. Again, it's probably referring to three days after the, the death. There's going to be a resurrection, and he's going to come. He'll come out of the grave and come down. He'll meet them. It's always probably, he's also probably talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit because, remember, I told you there's such unity in the Godhead 
that when the Spirit descends, both the Father and the Son are there also, so I will come to you. And then he's also speaking probably about ultimate glory, that either when a believer dies or when Jesus comes by way of the rapture of the church, I go away and I will come to you. So what he's doing is telling them that their separation is only going to be momentary. It's not going to be for a long period of time. It's not going to be forever. So they should not allow their hearts to be troubled, nor allow their hearts to be fearful. I go away, I will come to you. If, I, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced again because I go to the Father. So again, he's going to send back to the Father after the finished work that the Father had given him to do. He's going to go back and receive his reward. He's going to go back to where he eternally existed. And it's interesting, we spoke about this last Sunday evening in our evening service, which is pretty well attended, I'll give you that, but some of you don't ever come. So as your pastor, I'm going to say something to you that you're cutting yourself off of 50% of the teaching of this fellowship, 50% of the teaching that you could get from the pulpit from the word of God. I used to be one of you. I get it. I, I see how life is at work and schoolwork and family, and it's hard, and I need some rest, okay? Long, long time ago. I have to show up now because everybody expects me to preach, so I have no excuses, right? Let me just be honest with you. On Sunday night, on the Lord's Day evening, you don't need to do your homework. It's reality. On Sunday night, you don't need to have more rest time, downtime, to get yourself ready for the work week. What you need is God's word. What you need is to be a part of God's fellowship. You need to be with God's people as you see the day draw near. We need to be together more, not less. Amen. Let me tell you how busy you are. You are so busy in your life, you can't afford not to be here on a Sunday night. That's a different perspective. That's a biblical perspective. And I mean this most kindly, and I'm speaking of myself, but at some point in my life I grew up, and I understood that. And I committed myself to the fellowship in the evening, even before I became the pastor in this pulpit. Because I understood I need to be there. And if I don't need to be there, which I do, if I don't need to be there, everybody else in the fellowship needs me to be there for them. Because it's not just all about me. Tangent over. Blood pressure will come down. I'm going to go away. I'm, you're going to, if you love me, you would rejoice because I go to the Father. Again, I talk about it last Sunday night out of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Christ... It says, Paul says, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand. The right hand of God, that's where he's at currently. That's his position of exaltation, a position of honor. Restored to the position that he's held throughout all of eternity before he humbled himself. Right? And his incarnation, Paul says like this, uh, Philippians 2, 5, Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, who although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, he emptied himself, he took on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself to the becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow and every of those who are in heaven 
and on the earth and under the earth that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. That's the position Jesus Christ holds presently. As we just read in the book of the Revelation, that's where he is, exalted. He's now in that same position of glory that he had with the Father throughout all of eternity as John started off his book. Uh, John 1 and 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, right? Prostantheon, right? Face to face with God. He was there with God, and the Word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. It is the fulfillment of the prayer that he will pray in John 17. I glorified thee when I was on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given to me to do, and I now glorify me uh, together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the foundation of the world. Right? That's where he is presently. So what does the, the cross mean to Jesus Christ? Uh, that although he has humbled himself, he's put on our, on our humanity, the cross means that he has an opportunity to go back to the Father where he's going to be restored to the position of exaltation at the Father's right hand, a place of honor, power, preeminence that belongs to him rightly. Position that he held for all eternity past and a hold for all eternity future. If you loved me, you would have taken your focus off yourself and you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. And the fact that he's come to earth and is going back to the Father means that his earthly ministry has been fulfilled. It's fulfilled all the eternal plans and purposes of God. Romans 4.25, he was delivered up because of our transgressions and raised because of our what? Justification. Delivered because of our transgressions, raised up because of our justification. We have peace with God. Chapter 5, verse 1 in the book of Romans. It's over. Chapter 8, there's now therefore no condemnation. It's over because Jesus Christ finished the work that God the Father sent him from eternity into time to accomplish. And he's going back to the Father. If you'd have loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go back to the Father. And if you were with us last Sunday evening, you would remember that I told you, not has he gone back, just gone back to a position of honor and power, The Bible says that Christ not only is at the right hand of God, but he's seated at the right hand of God. Hebrews 1.3, he's the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 10 verse 12, but he having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. That phrase that Christ is seated or Christ has sat down at the right hand of God, I told you, uh, primarily, (coughs) excuse me, primarily refers to his uh, work as our great high priest that he did between the resurrection and being seated at the right hand. The fact that that Christ is sitting down, that he is seated, again, implies his work is finished. No high priest in the temple ever sat down. He sat down. All the high priests were always standing because there was always work to do, not when Christ came. Because he offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, and now he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Christ seated, work finished, redemption won. Nothing else can be done. Nothing else needs to be done. Nothing can be added to his finished work. And although Christ would have to go through the agony of the cross to return to his Father, he was confident that he was going back to him. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced again because I go to the Father. Back into his presence. Back to the Father whom he loves. Because Jesus knew that after the cross, he knew after his all-atoning, propitiatory, 
substitutionary sacrifice on Calvary's cross on the upcoming day that God the Father would, in the words of Ephesians 1.20, raise him from the dead and seat him at the right hand, or to his right hand, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. That's what the cross means to Christ. Returning to the glory that he once enjoyed with the Father, having the full, having fulfilled the work the Father gave him to do. As he's humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God the Father is exalting Christ. God the Father is honoring his Son. God the Father is vindicating his uh, ministry. Uh, his ministry. He, he, he's lifting him up. He's magnifying him, uh, dignifying him, exalting the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to the highest place in the universe, rewarding his son for his perfect life, his perfect obedience, his perfect atoning sacrifice on the cross. That's why the writer of the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, that we should be fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the same, has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The king of eternity put on our humanity, born as a baby in a humble stable, laid in a feeding trough, no place to regularly lay his head, He suffered hatred and abuse and the jeers of evil men, rejected by his own people, vilified by the religious leaders, despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He's headed back to glory. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. That's what Paul means when he says, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you you to know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor that through his poverty you might become rich. It's what the writer of the book of Hebrews, mean, Hebrews means when he says, Hebrews 2.9, but we do see him who's been for a little while, uh, made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Verse 17 says, Therefore he's had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest, and all things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that he was suffered, and that he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. If you'd have really understood, if you'd really loved me, if you weren't so selfish, you'd have rejoiced because I go to the Father. And then he has this, for the Father is greater than I. Hmm. Now right here is where all those who deny the deity of Christ, they want to twist and pervert the truth. They want to take this statement, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Gnostics, the Arians, the Unitarians, the Socinians, the Modernists, others who have a, an agenda to deny the deity of Christ. They want to twist the meaning of John fourteen twenty eight and attempt to turn it into a quote-unquote proof that Jesus is inferior to the Father, but that's not what he is saying here. In fact, throughout all of Jesus' ministry, repeatedly he had asserted and proved his deity, his full equality with the Father. 
John 5, 17, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. John 8, 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. John 10, 30, I am the father of one. John 14, 9, he who has seen me has seen the father. Jesus is most certainly not going back or reversing all that he has said concerning uh, uh, his equality with God. Jesus is not speaking here in this verse about his essential nature as deity, but he's just talking about his role of submission during his earthly ministry. And while the Father and the Son are co-equal eternally, the role and function is different. The Son incarnated, the Son submitted to the Father's will in his incarnation. So the statement is just nothing but Christ's perspective as being a humble servant in the role that he assumed during his earthly ministry. It's not a denial of his deity. Again, as I read out of Philippians 2, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with the God a thing to be grasped, but he entered himself, took on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself, become obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Took the position of humanity so he could stand as our substitute. So what does the cross upcoming mean to Jesus? He says, I go away and I will come to you. And if you truly loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. I'm going back to the sphere where I belong. I'm going back to the glory that I had with the Father before the world began. I'm going back to the Father to the glory that I had before the world began when I laid aside that glory in my incarnation and I voluntarily took on a position of inferiority here in the church. For the Father is greater than I. Again, in, his, in the Father's position of undiminished glory where, again, the, the Son humbles himself in the incarnation. J.C. Ryle says this. He says, those who hate the doctrine of Christ's divinity forget that Trinitarians maintain the humanity of Christ as strongly as his divinity. They never shrink from admitting that while Christ as God is equal to the Father, as a man he's inferior to the Father. And this is exactly the sense of what Christ says here when he says, my Father is greater than I. So again, if these men, the disciples, the 11 that are left, would have really loved him with a selfless love, instead of looking at the whole situation emotionally, trying to see it from their own perspective and their own loss, if they really loved Jesus to the extent that he loves them, they would have seen his departure as his own homegoing. They would have seen it as something that is a gain to him. And they would have rejoiced. But again, their perspective at the moment is selfish, self-centered. The second thing the cross means to Jesus is the truth is going to become documented. The truth is going to become verified. Uh, again, validated if you want. The truth documented. Verse 29, Now I've told you before it comes to pass, that when it comes to pass you may believe. He said something very similar back in chapter 13, verse 9, right after he washed the disciples' feet. He told them that one of those whom he had chosen, one who eats bread with me, is going to lift up his heel against me. Again, he's talking about Judas's betrayal. Chapter 13, verse 19, from now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, 
you may believe that I am. And if you may remember that study, uh, I told you we went through that text, the next word in many of our translations is he, but that's not in the original. So it says from now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it occurs, you may believe that I am. Uh, again, it's another declaration of his deity, another declaration that Jesus is the I am, uh, the divine name of God out of uh, the book of Exodus. So he says the same thing here in verse 29. I've told you before it comes to pass, that when it comes to pass, you may believe. From now on, I'm going to disclose to you the future. I'm going to tell you the future. I'm going to reveal to you the future. So that after these events in the future, you can look back and remember, I told you the truth of these events as they unfolded before they happened. So that when they do happen, when they occur, you may believe that I am. Or here, when it comes to pass, you may believe. So again, the disciples believe, uh, probably a lot of, like a lot of us, but they still don't, ha- they don't get it. They, they have a difficult time. Quiz question. Who can tell the future before it happens? Answer, pretty simple. Only God, right? Isaiah 46.9, remember the former things long past, for I am God, there's no other. I am God, there's no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient time, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I'll accomplish all my good pleasure. Only God knows the future and Jesus is God. Now, amazingly, the disciples had previously acknowledged that fact themselves, right? The deity of Christ. Remember back in Matthew 16, Jesus began asking the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man? And they said, some say this John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Matthew 16, verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You come to this in truth by divine revelation. You're right. God the Father has given you that answer. John chapter 1, verse 41, he found first his own brother Simon and said to him, we found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus Nazarene, the son of Joseph, Joseph, verse 49, Jesus answered, or Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. John 6 and 69, we believe and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They acknowledge that. They don't fully get it. Aren't they a lot like us or we're a lot like them? God's sovereign. God's ruling from his throne. God wants to give me peace. Next word. But. (laughs) Yeah, right? They get it, but they don't get it. We get it, but we don't get it. Remember back in chapter 2 of the book of John, uh, he, uh, uh, he said, destroy the temple in three days, I'll rise it up. Now the Jews, right, the religious Jews, they thought he was talking about the physical temple and said, well, look, you know, it's 46 years, how are you going to do that in three days? But he's actually talking about his body. Verse 22 of that chapter, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he'd spoken, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Listen, that's all we have. The scripture, the word of God. Talk about it all the time here. The greatest gift that God has ever given to us is the truth. That's all we have. That's the only place we can take our stand. It's the truth. You're going to see it in the future here in John 16. 
Christ is going to tell the disciples, look, if you're going to follow me, persecution is coming. Chapter 16, verse 1, these things I have spoken to you that you may keep, be kept from stumbling. They'll make you outcasts in the synagogue and hours coming when everyone who kills you thinks he's offering your service to God. And these things they will do because they've not known the Father or me. Verse 4, but these things I've spoken to you that when their hour comes, you remember that I told you of them. The only place that's safe to take our stand is upon this book. It has to be the authority in your life, in the life of this fellowship. It has to be the anchor that our soul can cling to, to hang on to, that grounds our life. What God says, not what the world says. We interpret the world through the lens of the scripture. We do not allow the the culture to work its way into the text and, and give us a different meaning. God made them male and female. God created the planet. Belongs to him. There aren't many ways of salvation. There's only one Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the truth. And Jesus says, look, persecution's coming. Get ready so you're not surprised. I told you. I've told you these things before it comes to pass, that when it comes, you may believe. Again, he's trying to increase their confidence. He's trying to help them know again that he is not a victim. He's not a victim of Judas. He's not a victim of the religious leaders. He's not a a victim of wicked men. And again, he wants them to understand his deity. And he wants them to understand that everything that's going to unfold is all according to the eternal plans and purposes of God. He wants them to be strong in their faith. He wants them to be strong in their belief of God. They're strong in their their understanding of him. Strong in the face of persecution that's coming. And he wants them to know that if they see fulfillment after fulfillment after fulfillment of all the things that he said, they'll understand who he is and they'll remain faithful because they'll come to an understanding that he is God. He's in charge. They'll remember and be encouraged. Now that I've told you before it comes to pass, when it comes to pass, you may believe. He is verifying the truth. which again is only strengthened for them and already for us, but again, other side of the cross, this side of the cross, it's going to be strengthened for them by the coming of the permanent dwelling of the helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit. He's going to come and live within them. He's going to give them supernatural peace. Again, like the apostles had never known before. And it's the person of the Holy Spirit who's going to continue to guide them into all truth and give them understanding. It's the person of the Holy Spirit who's going to keep pointing them to Christ. As he takes that permanent residence within the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth, giving them insight to the events that they're a part of. So again, everything he's told them has come to pass, and everything he's told them will come to pass. Again, he's going to be arrested. He's going to be persecuted. He's going to die on the cross. That's going to happen. He told them he was going to die, and that happens. He told them that he was going to rise, the sign of Jonah. That happened going to defeat death that occurred and i'm going back to the father and they saw that in the ascension so everything that he has told them is going to come to pass that has to embolden them in the context of the story for faithfulness and future ministry and that has to encourage our hearts also god's word is true every man is a liar god's word is true I've told you before it comes to pass that when it comes to pass, you may believe. And then he says this, verse 30, I will not speak much more to you or much more with you. Now, it doesn't mean the end of the upper room discourse or the end of the farewell 
discourse, as some people call it. Because, again, that's going to go on to the end of chapter 16. But he's just saying, simply saying, look, the time that I have with you is coming to a rapid conclusion. I will not speak, with, I will not speak much more with you. His time on earth is drawing to a close. He knows that. Because he's God. He knows everything. He knows how many hours he has left before the servants of his enemy are going to come and arrest him. Which leads us to the third point. What does the upcoming cross mean to Jesus? Again, not only does it mean that his ultimate exaltation or his ministry is being vindicated, validated, it means that uh, his uh, message is being verified. Right? The truth is going to be documented. It's disclosed in advance. You can trust him. Thirdly, what does the upcoming cross mean to Jesus? It means his, uh, his arch enemy is going to be utterly destroyed. His arch enemy is going to be utterly dis- destroyed, defeated. Jesus is going to be victorious. Verse 30 continues. He says, for the ruler or the prince of this world is coming and he has nothing in me or no claim on me or no hold on me, depending on your translation. The ruler of the world, right? He's a, he is a usurper. He's a divinely permitted usurper. Of course, the ruler of the world is Satan. He's the god of this age. He's the prince of the power of the air. And Jesus says the ruler of the world is coming. It's interesting. He doesn't say Judas is coming. He doesn't say the religious leaders are coming, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. He doesn't say the Romans are coming, but the one behind them is coming. Because all these people are nothing more than tools in the hand of the wicked one, doing his wicked bidding. The ruler of the world is coming. And he is still the one that rules the vast majority of the hearts of men. And most men in this world are tools. All of them, apart from Christ, are tools in the hand of the ruler of this world. The whole world lies in the power of the wicked one. 1 John 5.19 For the ruler of the world is coming, again, it speaks to the special violence, the wrath that is coming upon Christ through his enemies. They're at the Garden of Gethsemane and then down onward to the cross of Calvary. Because Satan has always been Christ's enemy. From the time that Christ was a child, when he, Satan tried to have him murdered through Herod's decree and the killing of all the two-year-old male children. Satan's always been Christ's enemy. Satan tried to tempt Jesus at the beginning of his ministry and cause him to fall. Uh, He continuously confronted Jesus everywhere he went in in his ministry throughout his earthly time. He was always being confronted with demons, and Christ just kept casting them out, dismissing them. Now Satan is going to launch his ultimate attack when Satan is going to bruise the heel of the Savior, as it says, uh, fulfilling uh, in Genesis 3.15, but it's also the time when Christ is going to come and crush the usurper's head at the cross one writer aptly says this he says finally in a few short hours Jesus' lifelong conflict with the devil would reach its triumphant climax Satan would finally succeed in having him killed but in doing so would bring about his own destruction far from being Satan's victim the son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the work of the devil as it says in 1 John 3 and 8 that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death That is the devil, Hebrews 2 and 14. The cross marks Satan's ultimate defeat, though the final sentence against him will not be carried out until the end of the millennium. At that point, his final assault against God's people will be thwarted. He will be cast into the lake of fire, 
where he will be punished for eternity. Christ always looked forward to the coming victory over Satan. You might remember back in chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus said, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of the world shall be cast out. And if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. And he was saying this to again indicate the kind of death at which he was designed to, to die. And Jesus knew the ultimate defeat of Satan would be accomplished at the cross when he was lifted up. But again, Jesus willingly goes to the cross because he knows that final victory is going to be won. That's to be the final death blow to wipe out Satan's power forever. That'll be the point where ultimate victory of Christ over Satan, over Satan is won. He, he would win for mankind redemption at the cross. Ultimate victory would be achieved at the cross. So again, Christ looks at the cross upcoming and knows there's where ultimate victory is at hand. So again, Jesus is telling his disciples, look at the cross from my perspective. Throughout the ages, there's been nothing but conflict between me and Satan. But I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to finish him. Now, I'm going to destroy the works of the devil. I'm going to destroy the power of the devil. Therefore, let not your heart be troubled. Don't grieve. Get a perspective change. Be joyful. Because I'm going to the cross and I'm going to defeat the ultimate enemy of God and man once and forever. And everyone says amen, right? For the ruler of the world is coming and he has nothing on me. No claim on me. No hold on me. The New English translation says no power over me. And in the Greek translation, it's a double negative. It's no, no. And Jesus uses that for emphasis. Because there's no sin in his life, right? There, he... he and he's not of this world. There's nothing for the enemy to lay hold of him. The, the devil would have some power over Jesus if there was something to justifiably bring a charge against him. But there's nothing. And if Jesus would die, then it would be his due because the wages of sin is death, but he's sinless. Jesus committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. First Peter 2 and 22 Jesus is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Hebrews 7, verse 26. Jesus did not sin. Jesus could not sin. Jesus dies not for his own sin, but he dies again as a voluntary sacrifice, as a substitute for the sins of all who would believe upon him throughout all time. Therefore, Satan made a big mistake. Satan made a big mistake entering into a conflict with the one whom he'd have no ultimate power over. Therefore, Satan is going to be destroyed at the cross. John Phillips says this. He says, After the Lord's temptation in the wilderness, about which John is silent, Satan departed from him for a season. In Gethsemane, about which John is also silent, he came back with an even fiercer temptation to induce Jesus to seek some other way than the cross. Satan was doomed to failure. The Lord's sole rule of his life was, Father, not my will, but thine be done. Satan had no weapon to penetrate armor like that. God, through Christ, Christ was committed to do the Father's will, no matter what the cost. Because the cross is the only means of reconciliation. Therefore, last point, Not only would Christ and his ministry be vindicated, his person exalted, his message verified to be true, not only would he have victory over his archenemy,
But finally, the cross means to Jesus that he's going to have an opportunity, listen, to demonstrate his love for the Father. He's going to have an opportunity to demonstrate his love for the Father, again, by voluntarily going to the cross. Verse 31, but that the world may know that I love the Father as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Again, we so often think of the cross only in the terms of us, right? Christ's love for us, Christ's love for his people. That's because we're so subjective. But the truth is, a greater, an even greater demonstration of his love is the love that he has for his Father. Obedience. Right? Isn't obedience the fruit of authentic love? I mean, didn't Christ say three times in this chapter that uh, emphatically the true test of love is obedience? If you love me, if you love me, you will, right? John, 15, or John 14, 15, uh, verse uh, 21 and verse 23, three times. He says that's, obedience is the fruit of authentic love. And he's going to have an opportunity at the cross upcoming to give to his disciples living proof of his love for the Father. He's going to die because that's the Father's eternal plan. He's going to die because of his love for the Father. Not because he deserves death. But God had designed the cross as the only way for reconciliation to occur, for the only way for sinners to be redeemed. That the Lamb of God would be slain before the foundation of the world. Therefore, from Jesus' perspective, the cross is an opportunity an opportunity for him to show the world his love for the Father. And he rejoices in that opportunity. Because love at its best is selfless, self-giving, self-sacrificial for the one whom's loved. So there's the perspective of what the cross meant to Jesus. Something, again, that would not come to full comprehension or that the disciples not come to full comprehension to or full understanding to until after the fact of his death, burial, and resurrection. Then he concludes the chapter with this, Arise, let us go from here. Which, again, begins the transition physically in the narrative. Disciples are going to leave the upper room. They're going to start to walk towards Jerusalem and head for the Garden of Gethsemane. But along the way, he's going to continue to teach them everything he teaches in chapter 15, chapter 16, uh, again, then his high priestly prayer in chapter 17. So last question, what ultimately does the cross mean to Jesus? Three letters. What ultimately does the cross mean to Jesus? Joy. Right? Again, Hebrews 12, 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And listen, for all eternity... For all eternity, Christ is going to receive forever the unceasing admiration and praise that he so richly deserves that we read at the start of the hour where the living creatures and the elders are going to cry out saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive glory and power and riches and wisdom and honor and might and blessing. And everyone in heaven kept saying what? Amen and amen and amen.